everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. So today we will be jumping into Chapter 5, and before we do that, I just want to talk to you guys for a few minutes about a couple things, uh, King-related, of course, and I was really excited because this past Thursday... Uh, director Mike Flanagan dropped the new trailer for Dr. Sleep, uh, King's sequel to The Shining. And this movie is starring Hugh McGregor as Danny Torrance and Rebecca Ferguson. And it looks pretty good. Um, I'm excited to see it. It's going to be released uh, this November, and I think it's November 8th. And based on the trailer alone, I know there was a lot of discussion among King fans whether or not uh, this adaptation would be a sequel to The Shining, the novel, or The Shining, um, the film from 1980 directed by Stanley Kubrick. And we all know how King feels about that adaptation. He's not a fan, Uh, but he seems very supportive of Dr. Sleep. And even, you know, the trailer showed a lot of flashes to the film. Um, Danny on his uh, big wheel uh, or tricycle, whatever it was, um, the twins, the Grady twins in the hallway, the elevator blood. Um, I feel like they could pay homage to Kubrick's film while still remaining true to the original source of King's novel. So I'll be excited to see uh, exactly how this works in November. Um, I think Ewan McGregor is a perfect choice to play adult Danny, and I'm really, really looking forward to this. Um, I'm looking forward to It Chapter 2 as well, but this one looks really, really intense. So uh, so that's coming out in November, and if you haven't seen the trailer yet, uh, it's everywhere, so you shouldn't have too hard a problem finding it. <laughs> and in Episode 3 of the Circle Opens podcast, I read some thoughts on what Kingworks you guys would like to see adapted to the big screen or as a series, and Under the Dome was mentioned. And it's funny because earlier this week, also on Thursday, Stephen King uh, took to Twitter and tweeted, how about Netflix spring back under the dome, only starting from scratch and actually doing the book? Uh, Yes, please, Uncle Steve, (laughs) please. I am so on board with this idea. Um, I hope Netflix is listening, if not Netflix, uh, somebody else from another streaming network, um, because... Under the Dome is dark and crazy, and the series on CBS was just awful. Uh, I never understood why uh, networks grab rights to Stephen King's works, only to change everything that made the book amazing. Um, And you can't pull your punches with Under the Dome. So who knows? Maybe the seed has been planted, and maybe we'll get a more faithful adaptation in the future. I think that particular book... Uh, has so much material for at least two seasons, um, depending on the episode count. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed on that. It seems like so many people are trying to snatch up uh, the rights to King's works. So I guess we can see if uh, Under the Dome, maybe we'll get another Under the Dome adaptation in the future. And I wanted to quickly read an email I got from a listener because I love the question and I don't really want to wait until... I do the episode on who we would, uh, who our dream cast would be for the Stand miniseries. And this email is from SP. He writes, I'm enjoying the podcast greatly. I've reread it a couple times, and I think I might reread it again after the podcast. 
The Jaunt would be an amazing episode of Black Mirror on the subject of King works to put on screen. One discussion I always get into with other King fans, who do you mentally cast as Randall Flagg when you either read The Stand or The Dark Tower? He's always been John Malkovich to me. Keep up the great work. Thank you for the email, SP. Um, I also love discussing with other King fans who they might mentally picture as various characters. Um, I feel like it's a more interesting discussion when the work hasn't already been adapted, because sometimes I find it difficult to read and imagine other people if I've seen the adaptation of the work first, uh, like Thomas Jane in The Mist or Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption. I read both of those stories after I had seen the movie adaptations. So, of course, I pictured, you know, Thomas Jane in The Mist and... um, Morgan Freeman as Red, which was interesting because Red in the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption uh, was a redheaded Irishman, I believe. So so that was interesting. Um, anyway, back to the question. When I first read The Stand, I never really pictured anybody. Um, I mean, I saw Jamie Sheridan in the role in the series, uh, but for some reason, Flag has always been kind of faceless uh, to me when I read the book, just kind of this ominous figure. And then when I got older, um, several, several years ago, uh, when there was talk about The Stand being adapted again, I I thought Matthew McConaughey actually would be a fantastic Randall Flagg. Uh, he had that Southern drawl um, and the ability to act crazy <laughs> when he needed to. Um, I guess the Dark Tower movie kind of uh, soured me on that idea. Um, I think with the right script... And the right director, I think Matthew McConaughey could still pull it off. But to be honest, um, a couple years ago when they started, uh, after the Dark Tower movie came out and that whole fiasco, um, I kind of started redoing my own personal dream cast for The Stand. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people I had originally chosen were too old by this point. Um, A long time ago, I wanted Elizabeth Olsen as Franny and Anton Yelkin as Nick. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen is too old for that role now, and sadly, Anton Elkin has passed away. Um, but I'm rambling. I'll get more into that in a future episode. But honestly, right now, uh, Timothy Oliphant is really stuck in there in my head as Randall, and I think he would be amazing as the man in black. He is a fantastic actor, and he's got those crazy eyes, which I love. Um, so right now, when I'm as I'm rereading this, and as I reread it last uh, year, I picture Timothy Oliphant. I think John Malkovich, um, a younger John, John Malkovich, would have been great. Um, I think he's probably too old now, though. I guess you know Randall Flagg could be ageless, but I digress. So. Um, So what about you guys? Do any of you mentally cast Randall Flagg when you read The Stand or the Dark Tower series? And just for that role alone, if you could cast anybody that you wanted, who would you choose? And you can drop me a line on social media or uh, email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. And I would really love to hear your thoughts. I also would like to give a shout out to Secondhand Bookery, and if you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, and collectibles, make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. This weekend, check out their Father's Day sale for 25% off their entire inventory. Listeners can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their their order at any time. And it's always free shipping within the U.S. And they have The Stand, It, 
Cary, Pet Cemetery, Salem's Lot, and many more popular titles in stock. Um, I highly recommend them, and you can find them at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Okay, let's dive into Chapter 5 of Book 1, Captain Trips. A quick recap of last week. And we met General William Starkey, who has realized that the country is in some deep doo-doo. The A-prime flu that escaped the biological weapons facility with Charles Campion has a communicability rate of 99.4%. He thinks maybe they have the situation in hand, but then he receives news that Joe Bob Brentwood, a deputy in Arnett, Texas, has been picked up and taken to Atlanta to join Bill Haskum and the other men from Texaco, from that Texaco, to be tested for the superflu. Unfortunately, before they were able to track him down, he had already been patrolling all over East Texas, making it impossible to trace everyone he might have come into contact with. We also learn that there are 16 cases of the flu, and Arnett is currently quarantined. Out of the six men that they took in from the Texaco uh, incident, um, all of them but one are sick. Uh, there's one who seems so far to be immune to the super flu, and that would be Stu Redman. Uh, the chapter is also capped off with the news that Vic Hammer, Starkey's son-in-law and head of Project Blue, has committed suicide. And that brings us to our introduction to Larry Underwood. Larry has just traveled from sunny California to dreary New York City. And he doesn't seem to be uh, be very thrilled to be there. Uh, he spends a lot of time in his car outside of a brownstone building watching a rat eat the insides of a dead cat. Okay, well, he's trying to avoid watching the rat, but it's there. And sometimes it's hard to take your eyes away from something so grotesque. Um, I King loves his rats. He really does. And I hate rats. So anytime I read his stories where he describes them... Um, it's very difficult for me. Uh, graveyard shift was, that was hard to get through. <laughs> um, anyway, before I start going on a tangent about how disgusting rats are, um, let's get back to Larry. While it's clear he's not thrilled to be in New York City, uh, we find out that this is the building where he grew up. And before his dad died, it was a nice neighborhood. Uh, but now there's graffiti on the walls um, and some vandalism. Larry's not even sure his mother still lives there anymore, and he clearly hasn't been home in a long time and does not keep uh, in frequent contact with his mother either. We get a lot of backstory here on Larry, um, a little bit more than we got from Stu, and I think a lot more than we got from uh, Franny. And we learn Larry is a musician who moved west around six years ago. Uh, like most musicians wanting to make it big, he put in a lot of work playing clubs, making demos. Um, but then one day he gets a call from a rep from Columbia Records who tells Larry that Neil Diamond may want to record Larry's song, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man? They invite Larry to sit in on the session and play guitar. And obviously Larry is going to say yes to this. It's Neil freaking Diamond. Larry gets paid for the tune, and he gets a mention on the album sleeve. But unfortunately, Neil opted for an original tune of his own at the last minute, and Baby Can You Dig Your Man got cut from the final release of Neil's album. So Larry goes back to playing guitar in restaurants and singing, and um, a few weeks later, he gets a call that Columbia wants to release Baby Can You Dig Your Man as a single. 
And so Larry goes back in to record the song um, and another song called Pocket Savior. He gets $500 in a contract that binds Larry to more than it did than it does the record company. Isn't that the way that the world works? And that was nine weeks ago from the moment that Larry is now sitting in his car in front of his uh, childhood home in New York City. About seven weeks prior to that, the single made one of the three hot prospects in Billboard magazine and or on Billboard. And Columbia was so pleased with the single that they decide they want to make an album. And uh, it appears as though the single is going to be a hit. So they want to invest more in Larry and try to capitalize off of that. He gets $2,500 from the music executives. Uh, He calls everyone he knows after he quits his job. And then, as he describes it, he got falling down drunk. The single, Baby Can You Dig Your Man, made the Billboard Top 100, uh, entering the Billboard Top 100 at number 98. And Larry first hears his song on the radio for the first time with his friends and current girlfriend, all of whom are high on cocaine. And the single takes off. And, you know, when you hit it big all of a sudden, people come out of the woodwork. He's surrounded by a lot of people who want a piece of him. Columbia wants an album. Um, Someone else insisted that Larry's follow-up be a cover of Hang On Sloopy. Uh, People Larry had never met are giving him nicknames like Liar. Agents uh, want to sign him. And it seems like a lot of people are feeding into his ego. Uh, Larry and his girlfriend, Julie, have a horrendous breakup in which she threatens to kill herself and demands he pay her $500 for the dope she bought him. And one of my favorite lines in this chapter comes from Larry's memory of this breakup. Afterward, Larry felt as if he had been through a long pillow fight in which all the pillows had been treated with a low-grade poison gas. If that doesn't perfectly describe a really bad breakup with a really high-strung, high-maintenance, significant other, I don't know any better way to put it, to be honest with you. So Larry goes back to work. He cuts this album in about three weeks. In his mind, uh, Columbia wants an album based on what they think is going to be a 20-week career. Um, And they also push the cover um, of Hang On Sloopy. Um, But Larry's ambition is not willing to settle for the long term. And one of my favorite, another one of my favorite parts of this chapter, um, I have many, but is the description of Larry's album cover. And it says, the album cover was a photo of Larry in an old fashioned clawfoot tub of suds written on the tiles above him in a Columbia secretary's lipstick were the words pocket savior and Larry Underwood. Columbia had wanted to call the album Baby Can You Dig Your Man, but Larry absolutely balked, and they had finally settled for a contains the hit single sticker on the shrink wrap. And I feel like this particular image just screams late 70s, early 80s, even though I know this takes place um, in 1990. It's definitely a bit cheesy, but honestly, so is Baby Can You Dig Your Man, Um, so it fits. Uh, two weeks ago, the single two weeks ago prior to Larry arriving back home, the single hit number 47 on the charts. And this is where things start to go awry for Larry. He rents a Malibu beach house and it's here that he's hosting a never ending party. This is a party for people he barely knows. Um, when you hit it big, you know, everybody wants a piece of you. 
Um, and Larry doesn't seem to mind, and he doesn't seem to know how to say no. And he's got a few problems of his own, including um, alcohol and cocaine. And he bought his car with a $4,000 royalty check uh, six days prior to Larry sitting in his car in New York City. A musician and a friend of his, Wayne Stuckey, took him for a walk on the beach to lay out uh, some hard truths. And this is not a pleasant walk. Larry's hungover. He wants more uppers. Um, it's out on the beach. You know, sunshine is just killing his eyes. His legs hurt. Um, but Wayne tells Larry that the party has to end. And Larry is initially suspicious of this, but he realizes Wayne is not out to get him. Wayne explains that um, Larry's spending more money than he's making. Renting a beach house, buying dope from someone who he told to keep the bowls full. Uh, hospitality bowls, they call it. And Larry already owes this guy Dewey, uh, his drug dealer, about ten grand. Um, Wayne explains that the damages that Larry's guests are creating within the beach house uh, are things that Larry will have to pay for. There's $600 for an alcohol tab, $400 on a market tab for food. Uh, Wayne, the worst part is Wayne informs Larry that the cops will eventually show up. Um, the, the party's noisy. The neighbors are eventually going to complain. And he has people in the beach house who are doing heroin. Um, Larry now owes about over 12 grand. And his, uh, his royalty checks are quarterly. And he only has about $800 to his name. Um, so this is a bad situation. Um, it's, it's amazing how quickly out of control his life has gotten since uh, recording Baby Can You Dig Your Man. And, uh, you know, Wayne tells Larry that the partiers, he has to send these partiers home. And Larry's hesitant because he is afraid of, quote, losing their opinion. Uh, Larry is worried about what they'll think of him for kicking them out. And Larry doesn't want to be an asshole. But Wayne is quick to remind him that, you know, those people will call him names and they'll say he's forgetting his old friends, uh, but they're not his friends and they never were. His real friends saw what was happening and they already took off. Wayne describes Larry's situation perfectly. He says, quote, it's not fun to watch a friend who's like pissed his pants and doesn't even know it. So I think that was is pretty brutal. This is a brutal conversation. And, you know, he tells Larry that there's a hard streak in him, which becomes sort of a theme for Larry here. Um, he, he says, there's something in you that's like biting on tinfoil. Whatever it takes to make success, you've got it. You'll have a nice little career. Middle of the road pop. No one will remember in five years. The junior high boppers will collect your records and you'll make money. Here, Larry wants to punch Wayne. And can you blame him? I I don't really blame him because is it more insulting to say that, you know, Larry will be a one-hit wonder and never make anything worthwhile ever again? Um, or would you rather hear that you'll have a nice career, but it's going to be mediocre music that nobody will remember in a few years? Um, I feel like this is something, you know, with people like Larry, you have to be honest and you have to be harsh for them to see the light. Um, Wayne tells him that guys like Larry always figure it out. And maybe that's true. Uh, but Larry finally comes to his senses a little. Um, he packs up and starts a long drive home 
to New York City. And this is where we're brought back to the present within the, the this chapter. Um, Larry's mother, Alice, is knocking on his car window where Larry fell asleep. And this is not exactly a happy reunion. Uh, Larry is afraid his mom will turn her back on him and walk away, leaving him alone. Um, and while Alice seems resigned to Larry's presence, she doesn't turn him away. She tells him to come inside and... She, you know, she's already called in sick to work because she knew he was out there in his car. Um, and they do embrace, which Larry observes startles his mother a little. And Larry considers this could be a touching moment. It probably would have been a touching moment if he couldn't see the dead cat in the garbage can. Um, so there's that pleasant imagery uh, between uh, mother and son reuniting with a dead cat nearby. And Alice makes him breakfast. Uh, Larry's a little overwhelmed um, by the memories of the brownstone with the sights and the smells of it. Uh, he's observing his mother. Uh, she's 51 years old now. Um, but to him, she still seems the same age beyond some graying hair. Um, he makes some remarks about her bosom, which, okay. So then <laughs> Alice doesn't say much, but Larry seems to think she's biding her time. He says uh, she could bide her time and she could keep springing small traps on you until your ankles were all bloody and you were ready to start gibbering. Alice wants to know why Larry came back. But, you know, you don't want to tell your parent in, in any situation that you failed or that you're in big trouble or that you owe a drug dealer 10 grand. He can't tell her the truth. Uh, so he says that he missed her, which, come on. Like, she doesn't believe this. Nobody would believe that. And Alice says that if he missed her so much, he would have written her more often. There's some small talk between them, some easy back and forth. Uh, Larry asks how she is. She complains about her back. Um, but Alice doesn't come across as very open to Larry. Um, and Larry recognizes this as well. Uh, she doesn't approve of his bachelor lifestyle. But she tells him that she did hear his song, Baby, Can You Dig Your Man, on the radio. And she tells her friends that it's him. So there's, you would think that there's some pride there. But uh, Alice tells Larry that she finds the song suggestive and lewd. And, you know, Larry tells her that it's supposed to be passionate. Uh, but like, you know, any mother at that age kind of stuck in the past, she replies that passion should be kept in the bedroom. So, yeah. And she also uses a racial slur in describing Larry's singing voice, which it's been used um, in the book prior to this chapter to describe the music. Um, when Norm Brewitt heard the song on his radio in his kitchen uh, when he woke up with a cold. And, you know, essentially it sounds like rock and roll. And it's mentioned earlier in the chapter that not many people realize that Larry Underwood was white, given his voice. Um, I'm not going to repeat that racial slur, obviously, uh, but King uses it uh, probably more than is necessary. But anyway, so they're talking about his car um, and we get a little bit of uh, backstory into Larry's father here. Not a lot, but just enough. Um, as Larry describes that he financed most of his car, Alice reminds him that that's how his father died. Max Underwood died of a broken heart going to his grave on easy credit terms. And Larry's father owned a haberdashery, uh, but that business failed. And to deal with the pain of it, Larry's father ate a lot. And he put on 110 pounds. 
and he fell dead of a heart attack at a corner luncheonette. At the funeral, Alice's sister tried to comfort her, but Alice said it could have been worse. He could have died from the drink. Uh, And she says this while looking directly at her sister's husband. (laughs) So Alice does not seem like she's one for much emotion. Um, And it's very clear to me that Larry craves her acceptance and her approval. And you can see this is something that he's wanted from everybody in his life. Um, Even the strangers taking advantage of his success in Malibu. Uh, He wants to be liked. He wants to um, have people who appreciate him. Um, And maybe that stems from his mother not giving him the approval and acceptance that he's been wanting. Um, But, you know, she asks if he wants to stay. Um, If he's not going to tell her the truth about why he's there, she, you know, she's still going to let him stay there. And Larry obviously says yes. And, um, you know, Alice admits that she's not good with expressing herself and that they parted on harsh words when Larry left for California. But, you know, she's still happy to see him. She's, you know, Larry is still her son. Uh, Larry becomes very emotional all of a sudden and he starts to cry. He says, as his hands blurred double in the wash of them, he thought that this should be her bit, not his. Nothing had gone the way he thought it would. Nothing. She had changed after all. So had he, but not as he had had suspected. An unnatural reversal had occurred. She had gotten bigger and he had somehow gotten smaller. He had not come home to her because he had to go somewhere. He had come home because he was afraid and he wanted his mother. Um, you know, Alice gives Larry her handkerchief and as you know, I'm a mother, I have three kids and if they're crying, if they're upset, I want to comfort them. I want to, you know, make it better. Um, but Alice can't do that. There's no real comfort coming from her here. And we see Larry from her point of view and she says, His tears couldn't change that stony outcropping in his character any more than a single summer cloudburst can change the shape of a rock. There were good uses for such hardness. She knew that, had known it as a woman raising a boy on her own in a city that cared little for mothers and less for their children. But Larry hadn't found any yet. He was just what she had said he was, the same old Larry He would go along, not thinking, getting people, including himself, into jams. And when the jams got bad enough, he would call upon that hard streak to extricate himself. As for the others, he would leave them to sink or swim on their own. Rock was tough, and there was toughness in his character, but he still used it destructively. She could see it in his eyes, read it in every line of his posture, even in the way he bobbed his cancer stick to make those little rings in the air. He had never sharpened that hard piece of him into a blade to cut people with, and that was something. But when he needed it, he was still calling on it as a child did, as a bludgeon to beat his way out of the traps he had dug for himself. For once she had told Larry he would change. She had. He would. But this was no boy in front of her. This was a grown-up man, and she feared that his days of change, the deep and fundamental sort her minister called a change of soul rather than one of heart, were behind him. There was something in Larry that gave you the bitter zing of hearing chalk screech on a blackboard. Deep inside, looking out, was only Larry. He was the only one allowed inside his heart. But she loved him. She also thought there was good in Larry, great good, 
it was there, but this late on it would take nothing short of a catastrophe to bring it out. There was no catastrophe here, only her weeping son. I absolutely love that part of this chapter. I love seeing Larry from his mother's point of view. And I love that this foreshadows Larry's arc in this novel. Um, Nothing short of a catastrophe can change her son. And what is happening around us in this book? A catastrophe is starting to expand and is ready to explode. And Alice here, she tells Larry to clean up and get some sleep. And she's going to go into work after all. And Larry goes to bed and it says that he sleeps for the next 18 hours. This is such an interesting introduction to Larry. Um, A part of me feels like so far he's the character we get the most out of. Uh, We get the exposition in this chapter explaining how Larry got from sunny California to a rainy gray neighborhood in New York City um, over the span of nine weeks. And Larry made it big in the music world, uh, but also found himself surrounded by strangers, drug dealers, mounting debt. Rather than face the problem, he drove home to be with his mother. Um, Alice says there's there's a hardness in Larry, but I think there's a lot of vulnerable of vulnerability too. Um, it's pretty clear here that Larry got that hard streak from his mother. Uh, neither of them seem like they know how to talk to one another, how to open those wounds and comfort each other. Um, Alice knows her husband was soft, and she thinks that's part of what killed him. So I think maybe she treated Larry a certain way so he wouldn't fall victim to the same things that his father had. Uh, Alice reflects that she had changed and Larry would change. But given some of Larry's thoughts about his mother and her own thoughts on him, I mean, has she really changed from when he was a boy? Um, Trying to find the bright side in her husband's death by, you know, well, at least he didn't die of, you know, being a drunk like her brother-in-law, that kind of thing. And I don't know. Maybe Alice just keeps her emotional distance because she recognizes Larry is selfish, that he would always save himself from a situation while others either sank or swam on their own. And it could be Larry is protecting herself from Larry's hard streak, his selfishness. Um, But even so, he's still her son. And it's very clear that she still loves him. You know, she didn't turn him away. She brought him inside, made him breakfast. She might not um, approve of his lifestyle of of what he's doing out West, but she's still there for him when he needs her to be. And returning home does not absolve Larry, his behavior, and it does not erase what he left behind in California. Uh, He still has the album coming out and he still has that money. He owes Dewey, the drug dealer. He owes a lot of people money, uh, money he does not have. And that will eventually catch up to him. Or will it? (laughs) With the super flu starting to spread, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I felt like this was a very intimate chapter from Stephen King. I loved the little flashback to Larry's rise and fall. Uh, He's not a very likable character. Uh, And for me, there is very little sympathy for the problems he's created for himself. Uh, Larry has his flaws, and we get to know him better once he's home with his mother. It's a complicated relationship. And I think there is probably some sympathy to be had here for both Larry and Alice. Um, I've always loved how King writes his families, um, good or bad. They always feel so real to me. There are flaws and resentments and bad feelings. um, But for the most part, there's always love too. And it's never perfect because what family is perfect? And this is probably my favorite chapter so far. 
um, is a bit longer than the others. Uh, and King has really, he's given us a lot of um, insight and he's given us this really complex, interesting character in Larry. Um, so I want to know, what did you guys think? Uh, as of right now, it feels like we have the three to watch for, Franny, Stu, and Larry Underwood. And speaking of family, um, next week we are going back to Agunquit, Maine to see Franny um, as she decides to come clean to her parents about her pregnancy. So <laughs> that's it for today's episode. And, you know, thank you guys for listening um, today and for downloading the first four episodes of the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And I love that you guys are still on this journey with me. And what did you think of Chapter 5 and Larry's journey back home? Uh, again, feel free to drop me a line at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on my website at thecircleopens.com. If you have time, it would be great. If uh, you want to uh, just let me know what you thought. Let me know what you think about Larry. And if you're enjoying the podcast, as always, it would be really fantastic and really helpful for me. If you could leave me a rating and review uh, on iTunes or just, you know, maybe just suggest uh, to a friend who might enjoy the podcast to have a listen. Other than that, um, I hope everybody is having a very eventful and healthy summer devoid of any phlegm. M-O-O-N, that spells. See you next week.